Well, this morning I want to talk about how much Jesus is worth. How much is Jesus worth? And then what I want to spend the majority of the time on is looking at the three possible responses to the person of Jesus. The New Testament gives us three different responses that individuals can take to Jesus. And by the end of the message, I hope that we'll all be inspired and see the importance for being in that third category of fully devoted followers of Christ, fully focused followers of Jesus. Um, So before I talk about the three different responses to Jesus, I want to spend a few minutes and talk about why is Jesus important. And one of my favorite questions that Jesus would ask his disciples is he would say, it's recorded in several Gospels, he says to his disciples, he says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I think that is actually the most important question in our entire lives. And it's the question that will determine our eternity, is who do we say that Jesus is? Um, And he first asked his disciples, who do other people say that I am? And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And so if you went on the street, if you just like went to the mall and asked people, who, who do you think Jesus was? You'd get, a lot of, you'd get a lot of different answers. One of the common ones I hear is Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a good teacher. And that's true, but that's only part, it's only part of who Jesus was. It's like saying that someone who's a husband and father and has all these different roles, um, that they just take out the trash or they just are a parent. Um, it's one of their roles, but it's much bigger. So um, there's a lot I could say about why Jesus is important, but what I want to do is just look at John fourteen six and look at three reasons that Jesus himself gives why he is important. John fourteen six. it's worth memorizing if you don't know it. In John 14, 6, it's the last week before um, he's going to die on the cross. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus has seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven I am statements because he wants to make sure that all people understand who he is. Because once you understand who Jesus is, things change. And you're willing to lay down your life for him. All of Jesus' um, 12 disciples, except for one, um, once Judas Iscariot died, um, Matthias replaced him. And so church history tells us that 11 of those 12 disciples laid down their lives for Jesus and were killed. And the other one, John, who I think God kept alive for so he could write the Gospel of John um, in Revelation and other books, John is the one who lived, but he suffered in his older age. He was on Patmos, which that's like going to Alcatraz when you'd rather be relaxing in retirement. So all of his disciples suffered for him because they believed who he was. And so in John, we get seven awesome and powerful statements about who Jesus was. So I just want to look at John fourteen six. So let's look at three things Jesus says about himself that will help us get a picture of why Jesus is just not an ordinary man or an ordinary religious teacher. Jesus first says, I am the way. I am the way. What does that mean? What does that mean? 
um, the New Testament was written in Greek. And that word that Jesus uses, that John has, is, I am the hadas, the hadas. And it means road. I actually have a friend who grew up in the military, and he was stationed in Thessalonica with his dad um, and family. And I said, hadas means road. I said, so when you were driving around Thessalonica, did they have signs that said hadas? And he goes, yeah, that's what we called roads. So I think what, I think what Jesus means is I'm the road back to the Father. In Genesis 3, man sinned, and he lost his greatest privilege. Our greatest privilege is to know God intimately and be known by God. Augustine said, You have formed our hearts for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So I think that's where a lot of addictions and different things we see in our society come from, is that our hearts are made to know God, but they're longing, they're longing for that, but we turn to other things. So Jesus says, I'm the way back to that intimate relationship with God the Father that Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis 3, one of the saddest verses, that after Adam and Eve sinned, it said, God drove them away from the presence of the Lord. But Jesus is the way back into the presence of the Lord, the Holy of Holies. So he says, I am the way. Then he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. That's one of the things I love about Jesus. If I want to know what's true or want to know how to live my life, all I have to do is read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So he's saying, I am the truth. In John eight twelve, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So if we turn on the TV, we see all different worldviews or go to the self-help section at the bookstore or watch Dr. Phil. We get all these different worldviews about how we're supposed to live our life. Um, you name the issue, you'll have someone telling you what they think the right way to um, respond to it is or the right way to live. But all we have to do is go to Jesus and he's the light of the world. He, all we have to do is follow him and we can't go wrong. In life, And then finally he says, I am the life. So he says, I am the way. So he's the way back to the Father. He's the truth. In a very confusing world, our culture is very confused. But Jesus is the truth. He came to speak God's words. God made us so he knows what's best for us. So he came down and put a body on. And he says, this is how you live. And lastly, Jesus said, I am the life. I am the life says this repeatedly throughout John. And I love that statement. He's saying, I am the life. Just touch me. I am life myself. Can you imagine if I walked in here this morning and I came up here and I said, I am the life. <laughs> I am the life. You want life for you? A broken arm? Just touch me. If you die, you want me to raise you from the dead? You'd be like, this guy is crazy. Um, there's three funerals recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus encountered. One is Lazarus. Um, and one is a girl who died, a young girl who was 12 years old. And another one, he was going into a town, and a widow came out. So her husband had died, and she had one child, one son. And he, he, was, he was dead. They were carrying the casket. And he saw how sad she was. So he said, get up. And he raised, he raised him from the dead. He raised all three. He raised Lazarus, the 12-year-old girl, and the widow of Nain's son. So we don't have a recorded funeral that Jesus went to where he didn't raise the person from the dead. People who Jesus encountered, 
they got life. Um, You've heard of serial killers. Jesus was a serial healer. Everywhere he went, he brought healing. And so what Jesus is, is Jesus is God incarnate, coming down, bringing heaven to earth. Bringing heaven to earth. So the reason we see chaos, the reason we see chaos in our culture and in our world is because we're not doing things God's way. Jesus came to call us back. Jesus came to bring racial reconciliation, interpersonal healing, family reconciliation. And he came to create disciples who would follow God and establish churches, and then we would live out heaven on earth. That's what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be heaven on earth. So we're a foretaste of what heaven's going to look like. To see what heaven's like, all people should have to do is look at Christians and say, how are they treating each other? How are they living? Wow, they're following the truth. They must have some truth. They must know something that I don't know because their families, even though we're not perfect, and their church, even though churches aren't perfect, they're doing something different. They have a life and they have a joy that I don't see in other people around me. So Jesus came to bring heaven to earth and teach us how to live and give us a foretaste of the future. Jesus healed people of physical maladies. He is constantly healing blind people, crippled people, lame people, lepers. So Jesus brought physical healing. He brought physical healing. He brought um, emotional healing to people. He raised people from the dead. And then he taught people how to live who were confused. So every single need that we have as a human being, Jesus came to meet that need and to fix what was broken. He came to reverse the curse. The curse we see in Genesis 3, everything that's broken, Jesus came to reverse it and make it right. So what I want to do now is look at three responses to this amazing Jesus who's God. Jesus came down. He's God. He's like, I'm bringing heaven. I'm bringing healing. I'm undoing death. I'm undoing all this brokenness in the world. And you can come follow me and get a taste of heaven right now. And when you die, you can come and be with me in my Father's house forever. So that's an amazing invitation. There says in Revelation 21 that he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. So now all that's left is, there's, is how are we going to respond to Jesus? Who do we say that he is? And then if we know who he is, are we willing to follow him? So what I want to do is look at three responses to Jesus. The first response is non-discipleship. Non-discipleship. So it's, it's seeing Jesus and deciding not to follow him. It says the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he said, He said, Lord, actually says he kneels down, so he respected Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus saw that he was breaking the first commandment in his heart. So he said, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says Jesus loved him. It says he agaped him. So Jesus loved this, this rich young ruler, but it says he went away sorrowful because he had many possessions. So Jesus saw to the heart of the issue. He's like, this guy does believe in me, but he loves his things more than me. He's not willing to be my disciple. And so what I want to do is look at John 14, 25 through 33. So John 14, 25 through 33. And right before this, it's very important, right before this, Luke has a story 
a parable Jesus taught of a great banquet, of a great banquet, where he said a man was going to have a great banquet, and he went out invited and invited people to this banquet, to this big party that he was going to have. And his messengers went out, and they invited all the guests who were invited. And he said he went to three different people, and each one of them had an excuse. One said, I've just got married, and I can't come. So Jesus is saying marriage, even though it's good, can keep us from God. Family relationships can keep us from discipleships. And then another man said, well, I've just brought, bought some property, so I've got to go look at it. I've got to go check it out. And then finally, the other man said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go test them out. So you could say now, like, I just got married, I bought a new house, or I um, bought a new vehicle, I got go, to go work on it this weekend, I don't really have time to follow Jesus, I'm sure he's a good teacher. So all the, none of these things are bad, but these things are all things that can compete for being God of our heart. And Jesus said, you shall have no other gods before me. So let's look at Luke 14, 25 through 33. Starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. That's Jesus. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus lists seven things that we're supposed to hate, and then he says in verse 27, and if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. So before we talk about what he means by hate, let's, I first want to make something real clear. Years ago, I was going to preach on this passage um, to a big church in India, and I was like, I really want to um, get what Jesus means here. God, what does he mean? Like, this seems crazy, like, hate your family. And finally, it dawned on me, this passage is not about human relationships primarily, That's not the focus. The focus of this passage is the great worth of Christ. This is all about the value of Christ. Jesus is saying, this is how valuable I am. So if we read this passage and we first look at what Jesus is telling us to give up, we're going to be like, whoa, Jesus, you're crazy. We have to read this passage. We have to flip our thinking and say, this passage is about the worth of Jesus. Um, An illustration that might help you is the other night, um, my wife worked very hard, so I gave her a ladies' night out. And I, had, I put, the kids down, put the kids down for bed, and then I came into the kitchen. I'm like, oh, there's all these dirty dishes. Oh, boy. And oh, boy, they have all their toys laying on the ground. Don't judge me. Normally, we have our kids pick up their toys before they go to bed. I'm like, tonight, I'll just, it's quicker if I do it once they go to bed. So our whole floor was like covered with toys. Our kitchen was full of dishes. And I had a cold. I've been fighting a cold. So I'm like, oh, this really stinks. And I just felt myself getting into a really negative um, attitude about this. And I'm like, this isn't good. I need to get myself out of this negative attitude. What can I do, God? (laughs) 
And I sat there a minute, and then all of a sudden my thinking flipped. I'm like, whoa, like all these toys, these mean, this means that I have two wonderful, healthy, energetic kids that are bouncing off the walls and making a mess everywhere they go. I'm like, whoa, each dish here and each cup signifies that we have something to eat and something to drink. What a blessing. I've been to the world's largest slum in Bombay, India, and just seen kids starving to death. I'm like, wow, like, you've given us food. Like, we have healthy kids. Thank you, God. I was looking at this wrong. And so when we read this passage, we have to see what Jesus is saying. Is He's saying, I'm so worthy and I'm so valuable of being followed. This is how worthy I am. And so we, when we read passages like this about taking up our cross and following Christ and um, losing our life to gain it, we have to say, whoa, what is this trying to say about the worth of God and how much God wants us to love him? Um, and secondly, I will explain what Jesus means by hate here. The word hate in Greek, which Luke wrote this in, is misse, and it means, it means to detest something in favor of something else. So it means it's used morally to choose one thing um, over another. So basically what he's saying is he's, he's not saying you psychologically hate your family members. He's saying that your preferences for God, your focus is on God, you're driven by God. And the Bible is very clear. A, a principle of interpreting scripture is you always interpret scripture with scripture. It says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And in, and in Matthew 10.37, the meaning's real clear. He says, If you love father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. And if you love son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. So what Jesus is talking about here is not breaking the first commandment, not loving other things more than Christ. Because I found with myself and watched it in other people that we're normally driven by one thing. Only one thing can really control us. It doesn't mean that we don't love other things, but only one thing can be tops in our life. Um, I love reading and running, and I, have, and I have friends I like to hang out with, guys. But when I, when I got married, I had to seriously taper my reading and running. Um, and if I didn't, <laughs> I would hear about it, which is good. Um, and so things had to change. My priorities changed. It doesn't mean that I, I hate doing my hobbies or dislike my hobbies. I might like them even more. But it just means that now I have a new priority. Now I'm married. Now I have kids. So what Jesus is talking about here is priorities. Is your priority me? Is your first priority the kingdom of heaven? And so what Jesus is saying here is unless you're willing to renounce all, which can we go to verse 33? So he tells, he gives two interesting stories about counting the cost. Um, we'll go to the next slide. And then in verse so in verse 33, he says, um, he says, and each one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So he's summar summarizing what he said in verse 26. Like you have to um, make family relationships secondary. And then lastly, in verse 26, he says, you have to hate even your own wife. 
So he's saying you have to make your own desires secondary. You have to make your own desires secondary. And so verse 33, So therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. He uses the word cannot three times in this passage. So what Jesus is saying here is, I am God in the flesh. You need to follow me. Man in the Garden of Eden did not trust God. They did not trust God. They did not follow God. We're meant to rely on God for everything. Um, And not relying on him brings what happened in the Garden of Eden. So now Jesus is saying, I'm God here again. I'm God in the flesh, and I'm calling men back into this relationship that man was made to have originally. Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to let go of things and make them secondary and follow me? So that's the the first class is non-discipleship. The first class is non-discipleship. And if you're an if you're an unbeliever here, I'd just like to read you a passage. I love this this passage. It's one of my favorite sayings of Jesus. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus says, Come to me and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus invites us to come to him. Jesus is not harsh. Jesus was kind to people. It says that he was sad when the rich young ruler walked away. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, he, invite, he invites you to give up your lifestyle. I think there's great freedom. There's great freedom in having someone who's smarter than me and more loving than me guide my life. And how beautiful that he died for us. Romans 5.8 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So all we have to do is come to Jesus in faith. It's an open invitation. It's free. He paid the, he paid the price. Being a Christian is free. It's not cheap because Jesus gave up his life, but it is free. So let's look at the second class of people. The second type of response to Jesus is distracted discipleship. Is distracted discipleship. And you can pull up Luke ten thirty eight through 42. Okay, it says, Now, as they went on their way, So Jesus, this is in the last week of Jesus' life. He was on his way to Jerusalem. It says earlier that he had set his face to Jerusalem. So Jesus is going with his 12 disciples. So there's a band of 13 of them moving toward Jerusalem. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So verse 38 says, And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So this woman named Martha welcomed him. Remember that. But she had a sister who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to 
she was teaching. And you can go to the next slide. And then we see verse 39 was about Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. And then Luke here intentionally contrasts Martha. He says, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him, that's Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Um, Before I explain this, I want to share with you guys a really neat interpretive principle, a really neat rule of thumb to keep in your mind when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you understand this, I think it will make your reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of these stories about Jesus' teachings and interactions with people come alive. So the first rule of reading the Gospels is, I'll say this, don't judge people. (laughs) When you see Jesus interacting with people, don't judge people. It says the end of John that if, John said, if I would have written down all that Jesus said, so his teachings, and all that he did, his actions, said, I suppose that all the books of the world would not contain it, could not contain it. So um, John is saying, Jesus did a heck of a lot of things, like awesome things, and I can't record them all here. But he said, the things that are written are so that you might believe. You might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and by believing, you might have life in his name. So the first rule when you read one of the Gospels is, don't judge, but put yourself in the people's shoes. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John specifically chose stories to help us with our everyday life and our discipleship um, to learn how God wants us to react to Jesus and how he does not want us to react to Jesus. So when we read this, we should not be quick to judge Martha. Jesus was traveling with 12 disciples. So that means there were 13 of them. And Martha had a brother and sister who lived with her. So that's three more. So there were 16 people that Martha had to feed. And if you read the Gospels much, you'll see Jesus just kind of did things spur the moment. He could be spontaneous. So there's a chance that he could have like texted, texted Martha, said, Hey, Martha, I just arrived in town. Um, do you mind if me and my disciples come and have a dinner at your place? We're like pretty hungry. And of course, she's not going to say no to Jesus. So imagine, like, you're Martha, and all of a sudden you have 16 mouths to feed, and you just thought you had three. Um, I think that would put some pressure on. And it's very clear um, in other passages that Martha loved Jesus. So she was a disciple of Jesus. So we shouldn't be quick to judge Martha. There's a reason Luke included this story. He wants us to learn a life lesson, and he wants us to learn what Jesus prioritizes um, here. So let's look at verse, verse 40. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She was distracted. So the Greek word that we translate distracted, the Greek word that Luke used, it literally means to be pulled away from. It literally means to be pulled away from. So the implication is that Mary wished to hear Jesus, but she was prevented from doing so by the pressure of hospitality. 
So Martha loved Jesus, but she just felt, she felt like pressured and like she could not sit still. There was work that needed to be done. And then Jesus says um, in verse 41, Martha, Martha, which he's actually, I've read that using her name twice is actually, he was talking to her tenderly. He wasn't like lambasting her. He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. So he's saying that we can get pulled, we can get pulled off on all different rabbit trails, but he's saying one thing is necessary. He's not even telling her that she can't serve him. He's not condemning her for that. He's just saying she's, she's let it get to her heart, but only one thing is necessary. Um, I want to read you what this um, New Testament scholar Norval Geldenhaus says about verse 41 and 42. I really thought that he hits all the key issues here in a way that's pretty concise. He said, Our Lord, Jesus, who has perfect knowledge of the human heart, so Jesus could see what was in her heart, saw through Martha's attitude and also knew that it was with a proper motive that Mary had withdrawn herself on this occasion from the ordinary household duties in order to hear the words of everlasting life from Jesus' mouth. So the Lord, although Martha's request that Mary should help her was apparently reasonable, addresses her seriously, but at the same time sympathetically with the repetition of her name. He points out to her that she is inwardly anxious and overzealous and outwardly restless amid all her preparations for entertaining him. But the most important task of all is not to try and serve Jesus by this kind of action, but through the spiritual exercise of fellowship as practiced by Mary. Material things and honoring of him through outward means are evanescent matters. I think that just means transitory or um, temporary. But the soul's communion with the Lord can never be removed, not even by death. Therefore, the highest form of service consists in this. Um, And then he goes on to say how Mary had got so worked up that she let herself get angry at her sister and at Jesus at her sister, and at Jesus. So um, we can learn from this. What can we learn from this? I think what I learned from this is I see myself. I love sitting at Jesus' feet, but I also see myself in Martha many times. I get on rabbit trails pretty easy. Um, The other day I was hiking on these trails they were using for um, horseback riding, and they just kept changing, and there were all these forks. So pretty soon I'm like, oh boy, I better start putting a stick down or a mark in the dirt, or I'm not going to know how to get back to where I parked my car. And that's, I think that's what it's like a lot of times when we sit down. We sit down and we want to spend time with Jesus, or even we're going about our daily task or driving, and we start um, praying or just thinking about God, and we feel the refreshment coming over our heart. But then all of a sudden we're like, oh, I forgot to do this, I forgot to do this. It's amazing how when I pray I start thinking about all these different things I have undone. (laughs) And so what we need to do is realize that our daily activities can easily pull us away from Jesus. Or we can can put too much effort and get too stressed out about things and be too extensive about things that we could simplify in order to have more time with Jesus. 
So the life application questions when you read the story of Martha and Mary is um, regarding Martha is I would just ask yourself this week, what distracts me? Because we all have unique things that distract us. So ask yourself, what distracts me? And then number two, what can I do about it? If we're not proactive about something, it's never going to change. If we know something but we don't do anything about it, we'll keep living life the way that we have. And Jesus said if you believe in him, fountains of living water will flow out of your heart. He said that in Matthew seven thirty-seven and 8. So a good test for me if I am putting too much focus on something or going about it wrong is I stop and say, God, am I at peace? And if I'm not at peace, something's wrong. So I'll say, God, um, show me why I'm anxious about this. And then he speaks to us individually. We all have unique circumstances. So this week, if you find yourself not at peace, just stop and ask God, say, why am I not at peace? What do you want me to do about this? And thirdly, let's look at the third type of response to Jesus. The third type of response is being fully focused on Jesus. Or as the, as the bridge uh, mission statement says, um, to be fully devoted followers of Christ. We want to be fully devoted, fully focused followers of Christ. Um, so Luke says here about Mary, he says that he sat at her feet, at Jesus, he, she sat at Jesus' feet and listened to what he had to say, what he had to say. I like that. Jesus, I'm here. What do you want to say to me today? When you read, when you read your Bible, don't just read it for information. Say, what do you want to say to me? When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say, God, why did you put these stories? Why did you put this teaching in here? How do you want to calm my anxious heart today? How do you want to guide me? I find amazing guidance for practical, non-spiritual issues in the Bible. It's amazing when you read the Bible how um, God created all facets of life, um, everything outside of our quiet time. So I find that when I spend time with God, He gives me not only energy and joy for work, but also create creativity and like new ideas and like a new focus. So when you spend time with God, just be like be like Mary. I don't think she was lazy. I just think she's like, Jesus doesn't come to town every day. I want to sit and listen to him. In fact, she was very, very useful. Jesus was very useful, and she had an impact on people. I love that there's three other passages that talk about Mary. Um, let's look at Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. So when we when we're fully devoted followers of Christ and we stay focused on Jesus, good things happen. And I didn't put it on the PowerPoint so you can listen to me um, or follow along in your Bible or on your phone. So this is shortly before Jesus was going to die on the cross. Um, and this, this story that I'm going to read, it doesn't specifically say that it was Mary here, but most Bible scholars think it was Mary because there's an almost identical story in John 12, right after Jesus raises their brother from the dead. And it specifically says that this was Mary. So I think, I think that this was Mary who did, who did this right here. So let's look at Matthew's version of the story. 
It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So Mary came up and poured this expensive alabaster flask on Jesus' head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So they were more concerned about like outward forms of serving Jesus, tangible things. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing. So Jesus' estimation of this extravagant love that she poured out on him was that she had done a beautiful thing. And then a few verses later, she says in verse 13, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So that's fulfilled today. I just told you guys this story in remembrance of what Mary did. So this is fulfilled here. So Mary extravagantly loved Jesus, and this would have had an impact on the people in the house, and it has an impact on us today. So it wasn't wasted. People saw how valuable Jesus is. Jesus was of great worth, great worth to Mary. And what's really sad, read this. I'll read this to you from Matthew. This is the next three verses. So intentionally, just like Jesus, or just like Luke intentionally contrasts Mary and Martha in Luke 14, or Luke 10, he intentionally is contrasting Mary with Judas here. So I'll read you the next three verses after what I just read. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So money is involved. Money is involved in each case. Uh, Mary would have spent a great amount of money on this alabaster flask. And his disciples are saying, that was worth a lot. You should have sold it, and we could have given the money to the poor. And then Judas goes and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So it's all about value, three pictures of value. What was valuable to the disciples was the tangible like service of the poor. And that's very important to Jesus, as the rest of the Bible says. That was what was most important to them right there. What was important to Judas was himself. The disciples' service, the way they thought it should be done, Judas himself. But Mary, what was important to her was Jesus. She just loved Jesus. Um, So what I want to close on is try to make Mary's sacrifice... um, the way she valued Jesus, she thought Jesus was worth an amazing amount. There was no sacrifice too great for Mary to make for Jesus. So what I want to try to do is make this story of her doing that come alive in modern day terms. So Joshua Harris is an author and a pastor who I really like from the East Coast. And he, t- he told a story recently. Of, he went to visit a friend in North Carolina and his friend brought him to this big, like famous, elite, high-quality steakhouse. And so they went to the steakhouse to eat. And 
he goes, hey, I got to introduce you to the owner. She just became a Christian. So he starts talking to the owner and she's like, I want to give you a tour of the steakhouse. So he brings, she brings him in the kitchen and says, this is where we make the meat. This is where we make our awesome steaks. Then she brings him down into the cellar, their special cellar. And she explains that in order for our restaurant to be classified as one of the top restaurants, um, we need to have these elite wines because we're on this list of restaurants with the best wines. So she brings him into this temperature-controlled wine cellar, and she's showing him these bottles of wine that are worth tens of thousands of dollars. And so she's saying, this is worth 30000 this is worth 40000 this one's worth 60000 So imagine that you had a wine bottle in a temperature-controlled room in your house that if you hadn't bought it, let's say you got it willed to you from your grandpa um, who was rich and went to Italy and bought it for you and passed away. So you have this $100,000 bottle of wine in this temperature-controlled room, and you're like, oh, man, this is good because um, we just make average wages. So this can literally put two kids through college if we find a reasonably priced college. This is like our kids' college fund. And so, like, imagine you come home from work one day and your wife has, like, has some relatives over. And let's say her aunt, who she really likes her, just um, her one of her grandparents. And all of a sudden, she comes out with this bottle of wine and just uncorks it right in front of you. And you're like, can't even talk. You're like, what the heck? Did that just happen? You like literally see your two kids like college fund just evaporate and then she starts pouring it. You can't put it like back in the bottle. It's oxidized and you're like, so this, this would have been somewhat of the impact. You're like, man, like that could have like funded a whole like mission fund at the bridge. Like we could have done this with our kids. They were just like incredulous because there's no like the dinner would be done and there would be no tangible um, result from that the next day. But what she did is she just, she really loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus. So she just extravagantly poured herself out for Jesus. She washed his feet and she poured this ointment on him. She valued Jesus. So my prayer is just for you guys and for myself that we just fall more and more in love with Jesus. That's my prayer for my kids. Um, I want them to know the Bible, and I want them to do these other things, but I really want them to fall in love with Jesus because I think if we fall in love with Jesus, service always follows. If you love Jesus, if you read your Bible and pray in a way where you just want to fall more in love with Jesus, service is going to follow. It can't help. It can't help but follow. If you love your kids, you sacrifice for them. If you love your spouse, you sacrifice for them. And if you don't love them, you don't sacrifice. It's as simple as that. So I think the key to serving Jesus and being an effective disciple of Jesus is just to fall more in love with Jesus and do things. Then we'll do things that will make people take notice. They'll just be like, it looks like they like hate their bank account or it looks like they like, like, this relative isn't as important to them, or it looks like they don't really care about their life because they worked hard all week and could sit home and watch like Thursday night football, but they're out serving 
Um, or why are they down here on a Saturday morning, like serving or doing this aid station um, at the marathon? Like, there's something about these people. There's something about these people. So I just want to pray. We don't have a closing song today, but I just want to close us in prayer. Um, dear God, I just pray that you would show us Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can show us Jesus, God. But you said that um, through reading the Bible, through reading the Bible is how we can see Jesus come alive. So I pray that we would just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with new eyes, God. There's a reason you gave us four Gospels, God. You didn't give us four books of Genesis, as important as that is, book is, or four books of Acts or any other book, God. You gave us four Gospels because you want us to see Jesus from every angle, left and right and top and bottom. You want us to have a 360 view of Jesus and what he wants our lives to be like and how he wants us to love him. So I pray that we just fall more in love with Jesus and that you would reveal to each of us things we can do um, to fall more in love with Jesus because it's easy to love people who we see like our kids or family and friends, but seeing Jesus who we don't see, it takes some discipline. We have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We have to spend time at your feet and not get overly distracted, which is so, so easy to do, God. So I pray that you just bless rest of the week and just show us how we can fall more in love with Jesus with our, in our unique circumstances. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen.